0: Recording, 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 recording. Hey, it's Kaylee. Today I decided to sneak into a lab at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, British Columbia. I've actually been here before, and yet this place is a maze. I mean, not really sneak. Excuse me. Do you know where Will... Seattle, I got so a little lost. 8 like Yeah, I'll yeah. Oh, great. But luckily, I ran into Jerome. Thanks, Jerome. By the way, podcast right now. If they yes, keep no, some I,
1: of the, I wrote the story on you.
0: Oh my God! Yeah, I'm Jerome. By the way, hi, Jerome. Let's
1: lovely to meet you. Yeah. You it? Oh, great. Yeah, they some, they'll just label it, I guess. Oh, thank you so
0: much. Thanks, Jerome. Yeah, no Bye. And eventually, I found this guy. Who are you?
1: I'm I'm Mike Trimble. I am the genomics lab manager for uh, Dr. Will Shao here at SFU, the Center for Infectious Disease Genomics and One Health.
0: Mike and I are in the lab to talk about... We have worked together on this like bat guano project where we go around and we collect bat poop and we're looking to see what's in it. Poop! How exciting. What happens once I have gone to collect the poop and it comes here? How do we look for things like the the genomics in that poop?
1: Well, uh, once we get it from you guys, uh, we put it in the freezer here, so minus 80 degrees, so it's very, very cold. Uh, we pull it out, uh, we thaw it up a little bit, um, and then I separate out a few of the guano pellets. Uh, and then I put it through a kit, uh, a DNA extraction kit. And so we use chemicals to lyse the poo particles and all the other bio bits in the, uh, in the poop and put it over a filter, a special filter, and we collect all the DNA out of it. And then we, we wash away all the stuff we're not interested in, the proteins, the carbohydrates, till so we just have pure DNA.
0: And from that nice, clean sample, scientists like Mike comb over it.
1: So what we're looking for is there's a special gene inside of it.
0: They find that special gene.
1: So we're going to amplify this gene, and that's what we're going to sequence.
0: And now they can pull all sorts of information from it.
1: We kind of don't really know what's in there, and we know there's a lot of different species in it.
0: It's a bit like popping the lid off of a treasure chest, where genomics are the jewels.
1: Yeah, so once we sequence that, that all that data goes into the computer. And then we have to have our bioinformaticians piece apart the data and see what we have.
0: And those gems of information can help us understand what bats are eating. In Canada, mostly bugs. But if we were to cast an even wider net to include all the DNA in a sample, we could also spot other organisms like Bacteria and viruses.
1: Uh, If it's bacterial, we're going to be looking for antimicrobial resistance genes. We're looking for virulence genes. Virulence gene is uh, what genes help the bacteria. If you're looking from a human, uh, the genes help the bacteria make you sick. Uh, But if you're looking from a bacteria point of view, it's it's genes that help it survive.
0: Grabbing samples, extracting the DNA, sequencing it, and analyzing the results— It's a basic formula for any genomics work. This isn't just about bat poop. It can also be used for identifying and tracking bacteria and viruses that are all around us, and some which can even make us sick. Scientists around the world, repeating these steps over and over, are progressing our understanding of these microbes so we can stay ahead of them. It's a train ride that isn't slowing down anytime soon. And as we've seen recently... This issue is only just beginning to thaw out. I hear them beep and it gives me nightmares. Do they give you nightmares?
1: Yeah. No, you don't want to hear a freezer beeping when you come in in the morning.
0: You're listening to Nice Genes, where we peek into the world of genomics, sponsored by Genome British Columbia. I'm your host, Dr. Kaylee Byers, your doctor who's who of diseases both past and present. In this episode, we're looking into a race between humanity and teeny tiny microscopic adversaries. Hello. I went to your office first. Yeah,
1: sorry about that.
2: On my
0: quest to understand the front lines of this issue, I met with a friend and colleague at Simon Fraser University who's an expert in genomics methods, Dr. Will Will Shao. I'm
3: an associate professor in the faculty of health sciences at Simon Fraser University. My background is in microbial genomics and bioinformatics and the use of genomics information to track diseases and to understand microbial pathogens better.
0: He's the one whose name was on the lab door that I was at earlier. And as you heard, Will's lab uses genomics to recognize and track microbes, which includes diseases. What is the biggest challenge of trying to track diseases?
3: I think the major challenge is to understand how fast or how quickly these uh, pathogens can evolve. We're already seeing how SARS-CoV-2 time and time again overcome the pressure we apply through treatment and pressure we apply through the use of, of vaccines and, you know, new Vaccines have to be made to respond to the new variants.
0: And another thing I was thinking about when you were talking about the evolution of something like a virus, and we're constantly keeping up and we're putting new pressures, it reminds me of the Red Queen hypothesis. Briefly, the Red Queen hypothesis is a co evolutionary hypothesis. Proposed in 1973, it discusses a sort of arms race between organisms. And how they evolve. Each species is trying to outpace the other one. And in this case, the race is between humans and pathogens. As they evolve and change, we keep on trying to stay ahead of them with medicines and treatment. But they're doing the same thing. Some gain antibiotic resistance. Others become more infectious. We're locked in a constant foot race. And one that doesn't appear to have a finish line. I mean to my understanding, it's just that, you know, we're running... Forever, just, but we stay in one place, right? We're constantly, yeah, Alice in Wonderland. We're just constantly trying and we're, we're staying in one place. That makes me think about tracking diseases in real time. Like, how do we go about doing that quickly so that we can keep up, so that we can stay on track of things as they spread?
3: My own belief is that if we can understand how microbes evolve and what are, when you apply a specific pressure, how it's going to respond, there are patterns out there that we can learn. But this is a pattern that has many, many factors, that has what we call sort of a large problem, a large search space. In order to identify the patterns, that's where getting large data sets together and being able to interrogate large data sets is the way to go.
0: Tracking viruses and bacteria is tricky because they can evolve quickly. That's what I want to look at today. Diseases like SARS-CoV-2 don't start or stop at any one border. So for this episode, neither will we. To widen our reach, I decided to take an international approach. Hello. Hur var det med dig? Tack,
2: det bra. Oh, you're speaking Swedish. That's fantastic. First stop, Sweden. Speaking with Dr. Birgitta Evangard. Actually, I was the northernmost professor of infectious diseases for quite a few years until uh, uh, University of Greenland is expanding. And so they now have a professor of infectious diseases. Oh, disease. how
0: did that feel to have someone uh, take your title a little further north? Well, it was a bit irritating, not really. <laughs> it's a good friend of mine. Dr. Evangard has been working in the realm of infectious diseases for decades, as well as on the front lines of public health for just as long.
2: So I've had about 45 years of uh, clinical experience focused on patients uh, with infections.
0: And what was it like
2: working with some of these outbreaks before? I, I rem- still remember this is a very intense memory uh, from a summer when two young men came to the hospital and they had fever swollen glands and we had no idea what it was so we called it uh, uh, lymphadenopathy syndrome and uh, and i remember my then professor said bigitta i do think this could be a new virus you know and then of course Uh, HIV was discovered and and, um, we learned how to deal with it. Thankfully, I'm so grateful for science and progress.
0: Dr. Evangard is also a member of the Arctic Council for Human Health and a mover and shaker in the realm of infectious diseases in the European Union.
2: Back in 2019,
0: she organized a large Skillshare event in Hanover, Germany.
2: We pulled together 60 experts. I, I wanted to join if I could pull in Russians, so we had four Russians. Scientists and experts from all around the world came together to
0: discuss and share their research on the Arctic. Or rather, what lies beneath
2: its frozen surface. Whatever is in there, it's it could be anything. It's Pandora's box. And what lies under there microbes? There was a nature publication from the Finnish Meteorological Organization uh, that shows that the climate change is occurring um, four times faster in the Arctic. So this means that this is really more than we ever feared. Permafrost is uh, frozen ground. So when this thaws, nitrogen oxide, methane gas, CO2 level will be um, released... So what's frozen there could be microbes. Some
0: of them may be bacteria, viruses and parasites with the potential to cause disease.
2: Viruses that are like 30,000 years old and 15,000 years old. You know, more than 90% of bacteria are unknown to us. They have not been cultivated. We don't know what they're doing. Some might be producing antibiotics. Some might be producing antibiotic-resistant strains. My general feeling was that I was a bit shocked that 60 super-experts pulled together from the whole globe couldn't come up with more. You know, there has been some um, ancient viruses, not pathogenic for humans as far as I know, One 30,000 years old and recently one 15,000 years old that have been published. And there is a group in in southern France that has published on this. But otherwise, um, from a human health point of view, we know very little. This is um, what I think will be on the headlines on the next 5-10 years. Whether or not
0: these microbes that are frozen in time for thousands of years could pose a threat to humans and other animals is unknown. When they freeze, these single cells lie dormant, neither dead or alive. But when they emerge from their frozen state, is it business as usual? Could they go back to reinfecting present day organisms? Hi, Dr. Clavery. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Okay. Dr. Jean Michel Clavery is a professor of genomics and bioinformatics at Aix-Marseille University in southern France.
4: I started uh, as being a theoretician in particle physics. So as you can see, I'm still doing with particles, but they are uh, much bigger than the one before.
0: He and his fellow researchers are looking precisely at whether or not we should be worried about what thawing permafrost layers due to warming temperatures means for our health.
4: I created my lab in uh, 95, if I remember correctly. Uh, at this point, we started to work on the genomics of a parasitic bacteria. This is a bacteria that cannot survive outside of the cells it infects. Okay. And one day we found strange bacteria that we could not characterize very well. And for a long time, we didn't understand what was going on. And, and finally, we discovered that it was, in fact, not a bacteria, but a virus. We discovered what is called now the first giant virus, well, those are viruses that you can actually see under regular microscopes. I'm talking about viruses which have more than 2,000 genes uh, when uh, the regular virus, like AIDS virus, has, uh, has 10, for example. Well, that was the beginning of a, of a change of pace and direction in the lab. And so we started to say, well, that, that's interesting. There is a new branch of biology, those giant viruses. Uh, when we discovered that this type of virus was extremely abundant in, in water, in any kind of uh, humid environment. And one day I saw a paper by a, a Russian group claiming that uh, they had been able to to uh, revive a plant uh, that was uh, kept in, uh, in permafrost for more than uh, thirty thousand years which is prehistorical time.
0: Dr. Clavery's lab was interested in whether you could resuscitate species from permafrost.
4: First, it is important to understand what permafrost is. This is not ice. Permafrost is just regular soil, which, as you know, soil is full of bacteria, a lot of uh, rotting things. This is just everything's decomposing over the years, okay? Except that after the one meter, it becomes below zero. And so there is no liquid water in that thing. And if there is no liquid water, all biochemical processes are stopped. And some of those bacteria die because of that, but many don't. And they just enter into a status that we call cryptobiosis, which is in fact, they are not totally dead. They are not totally living. They are just waiting for better times to get some liquid water again so we can restart the whole process. And when I saw that paper, uh, at the time we were looking for viruses in all, all kind of environment, uh, I decided, well, if they can resurrect plant, we should be able to resurrect the virus. And so we just uh, called them and we asked them to send us the, the same sample, in fact, that they used to isolate this plant. That's what cool. That was the beginning of the whole story about the, uh, the permafrost viruses.
0: They decided to see if that same concept used on the plant samples could work with microbes, especially with their giant viruses. How were they going to do it? They decided to test other ancient viruses on amoebas. And It turns out that uh, amoeba are fantastic tools because they are
4: extremely resistant. For example, they are resistant to bacterial infection because they in fact eat bacteria.
0: Amoebas might not look like much under a microscope, but they're sort of one of the toughest of the tough in microbiology. They shimmy around in their little microbial town, absorbing other microbes to quench their insatiable hunger. They're good at what they do. They have a lot of internal mechanisms to help them process the many little bacteria they consume. But Dr. Claverie put these amoebas next to one of the dormant ancient giant viruses they had, and...
4: They start dying. The amoebas start dying.
0: These tricky viruses, disguised as bacteria, latched themselves to the amoeba. And that was the end of our toughest cowboy in the neighborhood. So long, partner.
4: It turns out that the virus that we isolated first was called pitil virus, and uh, had totally the shape of, uh, of a bacteria. So we thought that it was a bacteria, but uh, we never saw it dividing, like bacteria do, okay? And so for a while, uh, we called that thing a new life form. We didn't even know what, what it was. And so the, the code name in the lab was NLF for, you know, new life form, okay? But we had to uh, isolate them, purify them, extract DNA and do the sequencing. And, and when we add the, the sequence of that genome, we realize it was not a bacteria. It could not be a bacteria. That to be a virus. Okay, the amoeba is going to be very happy, thinks that she's actually engulfing a bacteria. But in fact, not. This is a virus. So this is a, a virus that disguises itself as a bacteria. So basically, we use the amoeba as a detector of trouble. And trouble means virus.
0: And Dr. Claverie and the lab dubbed these resuscitated viruses as zombie viruses. I <laughs> just,
4: you know, just want to, yes, to use back the, the term that I like it, because yes, this is zombie viruses. We think they are dead, but in fact, they can come back to uh, to life. No, I, I didn't invent the term. The term was invented by the press. By using viruses which are not a threat to human were able to prove indirectly that that's probably that very ancient viruses uh, are still infectious in the permafrost that is thawing every day now, releasing more viruses. And those viruses most likely can infect human or animals.
0: Okay. So, I mean, what does that mean? Should we be worried?
4: Maybe you've you heard of that story in – th- it was in 2016. There was that anthrax epidemic. An outbreak of anthrax in Siberia has been blamed on a heat wave melting infected reindeer carcasses that were frozen in the tundra. That kills a lot of uh, reindeers and a few people too, okay? And this anthrax bacteria which just it's a bacteria. So again, this is not so dangerous because it can actually uh, recede using antibiotics. In that case, it was only 70 years uh, old, the bacteria. But it could be seven hundred years, bacteria, because we know that there is a lot of uh, people that have been buried in uh, in permafrost, in fact, and those uh, those uh, corpses don't decompose. And if you died from variola uh, three hundred years ago, and if you are buried in permafrost, the variola virus is still there.
0: But when it comes to us, I mean, what what can we do about it? Are are you hopeful?
4: Uh, unfortunately, not. Not really. Uh, I'm afraid that uh, viruses are, are going to be a, a, a very long threat for, for humanity for a very long time. Bacteria, it's okay. We have plenty of different antibiotics, so this is still not a, a really big problem. But with viruses, yes, I'm really worried. And, and so uh, now since then, we've now about, uh, I think, even more cases of, uh, of viruses that we're able to isolate from different uh, layers of permafrost. Some of them much uh, older, up to 50,000 years ago. And 50,000 years ago, why? It's because simply this is the limit of, of radiocarbon dating. And so we probably there are viruses there in layers that are basically as ancient as 200 or 300,000 years ago. Many of them are still infectious after a very long time. In permafrost. So this is the danger. And this is where things are getting wrong now with the global warming, because as you know, with global warming, many of those Arctic coasts and the Siberian coasts are going to be much more accessible. And it is a big interest for the Russians because there is a lot of uh, mineral resources there. And those people are going to do what? For example, open pit mining, okay? Open pit mining means that you are going to excavate up to two, three, 400 meters of permafrost at once, which gets you back 400,000 years ago, basically, and release viruses of which we know absolutely nothing. So uh, what we just want to recommend is that that if one of those places uh, somebody gets sick with strange symptoms that nobody has ever seen before, don't send them back by the next plane to Moscow. Use the very uh, old uh, concept of quarantine, okay, to see what's going on. And so uh, it would be, it should be very important that all those uh, industrial exploitation have a good medical facility before just sending back those people back to the civilization.
0: I mean, okay, you know, as a scientist, on the one hand, you want to be able to Really understand the system, right? Yeah. You want to you want to research it. You want to know every bit of knowledge there is out there. Yeah. But based on what you're saying, I mean, is it is it better if we just leave this thing be?
4: Well, yes, no, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm very glad that uh, we only work on the, on amoeba viruses. We have now very good evidence that there are other type of viruses that probably could infect animals in the same sample. But we will never try to uh, revive any of those, those viruses. Yes, it is frustrating because our theory is that if our amoeba virus can survive, probably the other viruses will be infectious too. But I'm stopping short of proving that I'm not going to take the risk of reviving a new plague, a new human plague, just for the the sake of being, okay, I told you so, I was right. I think at this point, we have to stop. And this is why I'm so, uh, I'm a little worried about, as I told you, the Russians continuing along that path.
0: And of course, it gets complicated. It is
2: already Friday in Ukraine, and already we are hearing reports of explosions being heard in the capital as Russian forces continue their assault. Now, of course, things have changed.
1: Amid reports of fierce fighting and troops, Pushing into the country on three fronts, the casualties are mounting.
3: It is hard to confirm
2: details. And on the uh, with the current political situation, we have no longer access to facts, what's happening there, which is uh, an even further tragedy uh, besides the war. So, um, my group and myself, we had a great uh, Nordic Center of Excellence, uh, a six year project where we involved a lot of Russians. That ended in March this year. But in February, we just signed the contract for further expanding networks, uh, focusing on the permafrost and other things in Russia. And of course, that was in February. So the money uh, was withdrawn due to the war. And um, we are working with uh, our friends in Greenland and Northern Norway and Finland. So this is a very, very uh, uh, threatening. Uh, uh, event that will um, emerge, and again, many of those things that are in in the deep
4: permafrost, which is let's say a mil- one million years ago, uh, we have no idea at all what where those viruses is, and how many of those were in fact involved in the extension of species. There are some people that still believe that at least in some part of Siberia. The Neanderthal population that went there could be that uh, some of uh, those populations uh, have gone extinct because of infectious disease, including animals, including animal species. What are the chances that that happening? And for this, we have no, no number. I mean, it is probably, it will be very rare. So I cannot tell you that a huge epidemic uh, coming from permafrost is going to happen in the next century, or in a millenary, or in a million years from now. But the only thing we can say is that the chances for that to happen is increasing because of more people getting there and because of permafrost thawing at accelerated. So we start from a very tiny probability, and we know that probability is, uh, is, uh, is increasing. I don't want to, to make people totally crazy about this
0: all right one thing i want to emphasize is even though the prospect of potential pandemics hidden under permafrost is chilling both dr evangard and i want to be clear that this is still an emerging field of research with a lot of questions that need to be answered first We're not here ringing alarm bells or screaming from mountaintops, but we are articulating where we are in this race to get ahead of potential outbreaks. So what can we learn about diseases from thousands of years ago that weren't frozen in time? The ones that actually hit human populations? You're listening to Nice Genes, a podcast all about the fascinating world of genomics and the evolving science behind it, brought to you by Genome British Columbia. I'm Dr. Kaylee Byers, your host, and we want to get more people listening to the genomic stories that are shaping our world. So if you like Nice Genes, hit follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Unfreeze your podcast feed by sharing us with your friends. Okay. Let's hit pause on permafrost and zombie viruses for just a moment. Also, zombie viruses don't actually mean viruses that turn people into zombies. They're just sleepy viruses, but they do have the potential to become active once again. So I want to hit fast forward on Earth's microbe history. I mean on a time scale between permafrost from hundreds of thousands of years ago to only several thousand years ago. Hello. Uh, Can you introduce yourself?
5: Um, My name is Dr. Malandri Vlock. She's what's called a bioarchaeologist. That's someone that studies the bones of ancient humans to look at um, evidence of disease or evidence of the kinds of activities that someone did during
0: their life. Dr. Vlock studies ancient diseases and the communities that were hit hard by them thousands of years ago. What she discovered through her work may actually help us today. Rewind. How did you end up becoming a quote unquote ancient disease detective in the first place?
5: Well, I, as Young as I could remember, I was always interested in all the history books, like horrible histories, for example, that were written for children. Then by the time that I was in high school and looking for what I wanted to do in my life, I came across this TV show called Bones. Yeah, the
1: Bones. What did
5: you do with the Bones? Nothing. Dr. Brennan, I left them on the table just like you asked. She's a forensic anthropologist, Dr. Temperance Brennan. I saw myself in her. So I was very much dead set on becoming a forensic anthropologist but you could use the same techniques that you use on, you know, solving murders, but you could look at people who had lived and died thousands of years ago and find out things that the world didn't know yet. And for me, the story between how humans and our greatest enemies, which are pathogens, have co-evolved with each other, we've influenced the evolution of each other. It's so fascinating to me and so complex that I just wanted to keep learning
0: more. Dr. Vlock's work has taken her all over the place. I did a field school when I was only
5: 19 years old, first time overseas, and The archaeology of Southeast Asia was so interesting. The way people buried their dead, they would bury them in jars. And being the person to excavate that was so incredible. We can learn so much about who we are today and who we might become from our ancestors. I've worked in the Philippines, Vietnam. I've worked on a skeleton from Indonesia that's 31,000 years ago. Mongolia, uh, Japan I've worked on,
0: and Thailand as well. One of her most recent assignments challenges a long-held view by epidemiological anthropologists. So the story of malaria is one that we teach a
5: lot in universities to epidemiologists, to public health specialists, because with agriculture, we had what's called the first epidemiological transitions. The first epidemiological transition is a massive increase in infectious diseases and the rise of epidemics, basically, because of our transition from hunter-gathering to agriculture. And it's a really nice... Story that can be boxed up, but
0: the reality is that that didn't happen like that. What she and other bioarchaeologists found was evidence that contradicted that theory. It came from ancient burial sites in two different locations, one in the northern side of Vietnam and the other to the south. So 7,000 years ago, northern
5: Vietnam was a lot more forested. The people would have lived as hunter gatherers. At a time where the climate was slightly warmer um, and more humid, the resource turnaround in the forests was immense. Estuarine flora and fauna, marine environments were nearby, you know, forested environments. The animal bones that we find at this site are dramatic from monkeys, there's tigers, there's even a whale bones that they used in their uh, mortuary rituals that we found like positioned specifically around a burial. And it was well enough for these hunter gatherers to be able to actually live all year round and grow quite large populations. But by about 4,000 years ago, the climate has uh, changed a bit and it's drier and the resource returns aren't there anymore. So we believe that to be the ultimate reason why people start to adopt agriculture. But this idea of malaria is that with, you know, transition to agriculture, we did what's called slash-and-burn agriculture. So that's where you uh, slash down forests, and then you burn the area, and then you prepare it for agricultural land, basically. What results from that is the fact that you have stagnant pools. And these stagnant pools mean that you are attracting the mosquito that contributes to malaria, which is called the Anopheles mosquito. So that may have been the case in the Mediterranean where a lot of work has been done, Uh, but that's certainly not the fact in Southeast Asia because Anopheles mosquitoes, the species that is the one that spreads malaria the most is actually a forest mosquito. So it doesn't like you know, being around uh, agricultural uh, fields. So we should
0: have known that this story is not quite right. And buried away in the bones of these ancient people, they found a gene that protects individuals from harmful parasites like malaria. So the way I do my work is...
5: I lay out a skeleton in full Uh, it's important for me to understand that whole story of that person because when a disease affects your bone by that point you've likely had that condition for a really long time and it's uh, quite severe if it's affecting your bones and what we found is that both sites actually had evidence of this genetic anemia called thalassemia and thalassemia is really interesting because if you get one non-thalassemic gene from a parent and the other one a thalassemic gene from the parent, you don't necessarily have the really bad effects that come with a genetic anemia. So a genetic anemia is something that means that your uh, red blood cells are basically defective, they're not working properly, they're not shaped properly to be able to transport oxygen around your body properly. Okay. But what it does do is it, it changes the, some of your red blood cells just enough that malaria can't actually infect your red blood cells. So it's actually protective from dying from malaria. So you're seeing this constant flow over thousands of years of thalassemia staying in the gene pool because of the fact that malaria is such a threat in Southeast Asia. And we saw that not just at the site 4,000 years ago, but also in the bones of hunter-gatherers 7,000 years ago. So malaria has been a, a problem for humans well before agriculture in this part of the world and completely undermines this, this beautiful tied-up story that we've been teaching for the last 60-odd years. The same story with thalassemia is happening in Africa with sickle cell disease. So if you have sickle cell disease in its most severe form, obviously that's also horrific, but in its mild form it also is protective against malaria. So the, the problem with evolution is that it isn't a process in which to keep you healthy you know we don't respond evolutionarily to infectious diseases to stay healthy it is to pass on our genes and it seems to also be the case with um, some of these really horrible genetic conditions that we're, we're dealing with today the thing about thalassemia is exactly that there are areas where we've eliminated malaria But that gene is still causing issues and thalassemia, especially if you have the severe forms, requires constant blood transfusions, requires constant what's called iron chelation therapy. So that's where they remove the iron from your blood. So it's actually an equity issue as well to look at these things from an evolutionary perspective.
0: You know, I was really hoping that somewhere in this story there was going to be an uplifting piece about how these genes could help us out. There, I mean,
5: there are, there, are some,
0: there are some genes out there, you know.
5: There are, for example, there are some people that, you know, are less likely to be infected by mosquitoes. Where, you know, some populations are less susceptible to getting
0: bitten by mosquitoes than other populations. I wanted to understand how ancient diseases in the past can help us in the present especially when we're dealing with the effects of climate change.
5: Yeah, so the thing about uh, the evolutionary history of some of these diseases that have been around for thousands of years is the fact that they are very particular to certain types of temperatures and humidities or their vectors are. So uh, malaria is what's called a vector disease. So it isn't passed directly from human to human. It's passed via a vector, and that's the mosquito. So then the mosquito habitats are really important for understanding the distribution of malaria. With climate change, unfortunately, especially in the last five years, the literature is really showing that these mosquitoes are now appearing in areas where they weren't before because of global warming. Um, They're creeping further north. So where these two sites were in northern Vietnam where I studied Malaria doesn't exist anymore, and it's because the Noff mosquito habitats aren't there. But 4,000 years ago they were because um, the climate was still wetter and warmer, and so the forested habitats, that tropical habitat, was further north. So we also can get a bit of a caution from what we're seeing in the archaeological record, which is, oh, hey... This was here in this region in the past at this, you know, temperature and humidity. That's potentially what we're dealing with when we're going through climate change now. And that's why we look at these things through over thousands of years, even though as slow as they were, they had dramatic effects on people's health and and people's lifestyles. When we're looking at the things in the past, we're not simulating future climate change. We're just simulating the potential effects that these fluctuations can have. But the problem that we have is that we've caused it at such a fast rate. And then on top of that, we've also got consequences like new diseases emerging that we haven't seen before. So coronaviruses is a perfect example of what we're setting ourselves up for. And it won't be the last pandemic that we see. We will see an intensity in in frequency and, and duration of pandemics because of climate change. But we can at least look at the past and we can try and understand, okay, how did people mitigate these issues because they didn't have a World Health Organization back then who and and governments and and advanced medical treatment. They were being affected naturally and, and we can look at that. And so it gives us a bit of an understanding of what
0: happens if we don't do something about this. Melting permafrost, a Pandora's box of microbes, human genes that can't adapt fast enough, mosquitoes transferring pathogens from the air, Yikes. It's a lot. So, if I can muster my global experts here, what do they say is the way forward? How do you think we should deal with you know these these compounding issues of these unknown diseases and then tracking them?
5: I've been thinking about this a lot. My career is built on this question, right? How can we actually deal with this situation? Yeah, part of it is learning from the past. Also, part of it also involves Listening to communities where these things have been around for thousands of years, you know, Indigenous knowledge is very powerful.
2: They have uh, lived through periods where it's been warmer and colder. We need to learn more from um, people with local knowledge. And then we, we cannot lose hope. I mean, we all have to try to do our best.
5: Sometimes we can feel really lost in it all, especially when... There are governments that are the ones that make decisions, or you know, and and there's so much that's out of our hands that we can feel as as just people, like okay, but what can we actually do about this? And we can at least, I guess, like I said, prepare our communities for action. You know, when you've got communities looking out for each other, you've got sustainable communities within which you can build environmental responses to, and all of these things mean that we have a much better ability to then put our our brains to work to deal with this problem.
3: But to really address this problem, that's the main reason we think data sharing and the ability to harmonize data around the the globe. So being able to bring large data sets together that consist both host genomics, viral genomics, and also clinical outcomes or even population level outcome would help us solve This problem. So that's why, to me, the biggest task is to really bring together social science experts and biological experts to really work together.
2: And then, as scientists, we'll have to go out there and speak up and, you know, say our things and take responsibility, even if it's just a small thing. You do it. It's not just an
5: environment issue, it's a social issue. And those two things need to be put together. And that goes beyond, you know, just infectious diseases. Infectious diseases is just one of the effects. There are so many avenues that we can take to actually deal with this issue. We just have to actually sit and listen and talk to each other and coming up with a plan of action before any of this is necessary. Having these really strong connections that humans also have had for thousands of years with each other in a community, you know, rebuilding relationships that were broken down, those kind of things actually do have an
0: environmental impact. What became clear to me in conversations with all of our guests today is that preparing ourselves for diseases and being proactive means that we need each other. From genoma data sharing that Dr. Shao mentioned to listening to local communities living on the front lines of these areas that Dr. Vlock and Dr. Evangard spoke about. Across the globe, together, with mutual respect, we can overcome these challenges and create a more sustainable and healthier planet for all of us. But we really need to reach out and come together on this. Right now, I'm at the airport. In Bangkok. I know this because that collaboration is already taking place. And I'm on my way to a conference
5: that is the largest conference in the whole Indo-Pacific region for archaeology. Between that is where collaborations happen, where the sparks happen, where we get these bright ideas because of the different kinds of research that's happening around the region. I can't wait to get onto the plane to Chiang Mai um, in order to do so.
1: will we'll make it by
3: right. days we only can try. Either way, no matter what people say, Either
0: way. My guests for today have been Dr. Birgitta Evangard, Professor at the Department of Clinical Microbiology at Umeå University, Dr. Jean-Michel Claverie, Professor of Genomics and Bioinformatics at the School of Medicine of Aix-Marseille University, and Dr. Melandri Bloch, Bioarchaeologist, Postdoctoral Research Associate at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and a National Geographic Explorer. Special thanks to Dr. Mike Trimble and Dr. Will Xiao from Simon Fraser University for letting me pop into the lab and uh, begin this journey. You've been listening to Nice Genes, a podcast brought to you by Genome British Columbia. If you like this episode, go back and check out some of our previous ones wherever you listen from. Share us with your friends and leave us a review. You can also DM the show on Twitter by going to genomebc, and we also have learn-along sheets added to the show description. Join us next time for part two of our climate change segment, where we ask, "Can we repair the damage that's already been done to the environment?" Um, can we solve climate change? What do you think? I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yes. I, I think we can. Will we is a different question, but I, I think we can. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. Uh-huh.
1: Gonna get better